everybody. Welcome to another episode of Verses from the Void, your twice-monthly foray into the world of horror poetry. On today's episode, we have Mariska Pichette. Um, Mariska Pichette works in speculative and literary fiction, poetry, and essay. Her writing investigates queerness and marginalized identity, often involving monsters. Mariska's debut poetry, speculative poetry collection, Rivers in Your Skin, Sirens in Your Hair, will come out April 4th, 2023 from Android Press. In Mi'kmaq, we like to say Jalasi, which means welcome, come in and sit down. So Jalasi listeners and Jalasi Mariska, how are you today? Thank you. Um, I am doing well today. Uh, thanks for having me on Verses from the Void. Oh, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, I was really excited. Uh, you know, just the sheer poetry in your book title. I'm like, yes, <laughs> sold. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I definitely want to have her on the show. Well, awesome. Uh, yeah, I'm glad to be here and uh, the title of the collection does come from it's sort of an adaptation of one of the lines from the poems in the collection. Oh, nice. I love when that happens, because then when you spot it, it's like something clicks. <laughs> You're like, yes, yes. OK. <laughs> um, I love that your bio mentions that your writing focuses on queerness and marginalized identity, often including monsters, because I think that speculative fiction and poetry are really great avenues for that kind of exploration. Um, I'm curious about what overlap exists for you, maybe with that and your literary fiction or essay writing. Uh, could you speak to that a little? Yeah, for sure. Um, I have only written a couple essays, uh, but they usually center around kind of my experience growing up in like Western Massachusetts, um, sort of a pseudo rural um, upbringing. And for that, for me, really connected deeply to the natural world, to the woods and fields around and sort of an imagination of what kind of things inhabited that natural landscape, both kind of imagined creatures and monsters, and also the long history of the landscape um, in Western Massachusetts, the land in which I inhabit. Um, it what is uh, land inherited from the Pocumtuck and Abnaki peoples. And so it's very, it's tied to a long, long history of um, being and uh, also the colonization of that land um, by Europeans and that fraught history. So I guess for me, like looking at that through a nonfiction lens and then kind of translating it into fiction and poetry, they're, they're all interconnected. I think the sort of magic and the mundane and these different dialogues that we grew up with hearing and also then as you kind of come into your own identity and time passes, you investigate more deeply what other truths exist and what other stories may have been passed over or may have not been given as much volume growing up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of richness there. Um, I think, like you said, like as you grow, you gain more awareness of the world. Mm -hmm. It's not just... Um, through necessarily specific filters so that there's much more room to uncover. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that um, that kind of anti-colonial process that exists sometimes in that exploration too. It's just like, oh, my relationship to land can be completely renegotiated here in, <laughs> in a really good way, like a really yeah. solid, less objectifying way than maybe like the main narratives that you're raised with in a settler colonial society. Yeah, I think a lot about like where I live, there's, we have different names for places and some are European names or European re-adaptation of um, an indigenous name. But I also, when I was 
growing up, um, I worked a lot um, in reenactment and a lot that was very in sort of like the colonial narrative and being in dialogue with the indigenous narrative of the land. And also that all wrapped up in the long history of the actual geological history of the landscape. And it's just, there's so many stories and being able, I find that accessing those through different kind of genres, whether it's like poetry, essay, fiction, it helps kind of view them from in different ways and introduce the various narratives. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And I, I'm thinking, of course, of your collection title too, and that like that has a center of nature within it as well. Yeah, where I feel so deeply tied to the landscape and to both the physical landscape, but also the imagination of landscape and how we kind of view, like, is the land just inert or is it very much alive? In what ways is it alive? And all those different conceptions of something that may on the surface appear to be static and just have a single definition has so many more. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like poetry too is like a really great way to interrogate um, where those cohere and work against each other and just like exploring a whole of a landscape through pieces that come together in an individual poem. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that in mind, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the collection came together. Yeah, um, so I definitely didn't expect to have a poetry collection be my first solo publication. <laughs> um, I came to writing through fiction and through long fiction. I started out writing novels and then eventually I was like, I should learn how to write short stories. So in my MFA, I set to work figuring out how to write short stories and how short fiction worked. And then I just kind of along the way was writing occasional poems. And um, the this collection came about because I had a couple poems published um, in Solar Punk magazine which is the magazine run by Android Press. And so they actually approached me. Um, the editor, Justine, um, asked if I would be interested in writing and co- putting a collection together um, for their sort of as they were stepping into publishing actual books alongside the magazine. And so that was a surprise to me. <laughs> um, and I just was like, okay, like, that would be great. And I realized that I actually have a lot of poems (laughs) and had been publishing them sort of here and there and also getting into speculative magazines that I couldn't get stories into, I could get in with poems. And so the collection is roughly, I'd say probably about 30 to 40% reprints and the rest are originals to the collection. Um, so the two poems that were in Solar Punk magazine are in here, as well as some poems that have appeared in both literary and speculative magazines, and a whole bunch of originals that I wrote for the collection. Nice. So it sounds like there's a really good, like, rich variety in there, like, in terms of what is speculative. So mm-hmm. um, obviously you're going to be reading some horror poetry today from the collection, but um, there's also, would you say, like sci-fi and fantasy in there as well? Yeah, um, I don't have a ton of sci-fi in general, but there are, I'm not, now I have to like look, like are there any <laughs> poems in this that I would call 
science fiction. I think, again, that sort of when I write science fiction, it tends to be sort of science fantasy. It's not super hard sci-fi, but there mm-hmm. are some that are kind of like apocalyptic, futuristic. Um, and like one of the poems that was published in Solar Punk magazine is called Noble, and it's an imagining of like a future Chernobyl as it's sort of overtaken by natural life again. And um, yeah, they're mostly, I'd say the strongest through line is fantasy, dark fantasy, um, dark fairy tales, um, stuff in that genre is usually where I gravitate to in poetry. And then there's some that are literary leaning, but still have magical elements. Um, so, And that's something that I think is very interesting with poetry is that you can lean into those more speculative uh, elements and still have it be published in a literary magazine because there's more space in poetry to kind of investigate what's real and what's not real. The inner meanings of things such as nature and relationships and turning those into something that can be a bit more mystical than what might normally be thought of as strictly literary or strictly genre. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually like one of my favorite things about speculative poetry in general is just like even trying to define it (laughs) and like seeing where the uh, where the emphasis goes and like a lot of stuff that is considered speculative could be considered literary and vice versa. Yeah, and I think fairy tales are a space that is very much kind of transcends genre in some ways because they're so embedded in how so many of us were raised. And those stories that you grow up with that are in nursery rhymes or just in children's books that it kind of becomes part of a collective consciousness in the Western world of these things that are we know are magical, but they're because we all know them, they are given a little bit more leniency to transcend different genres and step into the literary world or embellish things in the speculative world where you get like snow white in space or (laughs) different things because there's an understanding that culturally you know what the story was or you know maybe the perot or the grim version of the story the disney version and now we're going to play with it and make it darker or make it weird or make it queer and you kind of have this understanding that your reader will most likely know from the outset if you say wolf, if you say Snow White, what story we're playing with. Right, yeah. It's so interesting that you say that. It's like, it it predates genre. So it's like fairy tales can go anywhere. (laughs) They have this kind of like archetypal language. Absolutely. I love that, like those allusions are kind of like just built in. So if you say wolf, Chances are some part of you is thinking already of the different fairy tales involving wolves. Yeah, I like the figure of the wolf because it feels so pervasive in fairy tales, but there actually aren't too many cases where there's a wolf in a fairy tale, but we feel it so strongly. I think it's taken on a greater cultural meaning than it even had in the original fairy tales. That makes sense. And like wolves were such a very real threat and danger in old time Europe, especially, you know, it's like whole yeah. villages just terrorized by the presence of wolves in the forests. So it's like, I feel like there's some level of inheritance anywhere wolves existed of that yeah. fear. <laughs> we all remember. Yeah. Our, our innate inherited memories of like, this is a threat. 
and then it kind of gets reimagined into now the wolf. I mean, often fairy tales that sort of suggested that the wolf is a man and the threat that the man poses to the female lead character. That's so interesting. Um, and I, I'm already seeing some resonances with this conversation and some of the stuff we we're going to be uh, reading today. So I guess maybe we should get into it. Um, did you want to start with uh, Equinoctum? Equinoctum? Sure. So uh, this poem is, it originally appeared, it's a reprint poem. It originally appeared in Ghost Orchid Press's um, Chlorophobia Anthology. Um, so I'll just read it. Awesome. Equinoctium. Behind my lungs, she whispers, too deep. In her echo, my toes seek mycelium and darkness. Holes widen to hold me, but moss recoils. Knows I am a stranger. I promise to stop, but I fight, ripping new wounds while my fractals form underneath. She whispers, breathe once. I gasp and gasp, 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 clawing grass, grasping soil and rocks, hearing only her voice, my skin sprouts, hardens where she planted me. Blink once. Bark creeps across my eyes, stifles my voice while hers grows, a whisper to a gale. Axe and spade are last to vanish, consumed under my shroud of withered leaves. Thank you so much. There's so much emphasis on sound in this poem, and I was really intrigued about what it would sound like when you read it out loud. <laughs> so the use of voices and like opening with a whisper and the repetitive gasp. Um, mm -hmm. Could you talk about the influence of sound in the poem? Um, I, I guess when I was conceptualizing this poem, like it was supposed to be eco-horror, and so I kind of came at it with the idea that there's sort of the the mortal voice and then the immortal voice that is the landscape, the soil, Mother Earth, what have you, that kind of sublime natural force that is overcoming um, the person who is trying to cut down the tree. Um, <laughs> and I, for that, I felt that part the two volumes, there's one that is, it's internal, that voice that is speaking, like on the page, it's italicized, it's sort of, you're hearing it in your mind, and whatever noise is happening outside is drowned out by this silent noise that's only internal. And I, don't, I was really feeling the the overwhelming force of something that could turn you into a tree that could kind of that sort of cosmic horror-esque um, experience of there is no way that you would ever triumph over this thing but in the poem it is sort of a questionable hero <laughs> because it is something sort of profoundly horrific to be transformed to be overcome but it's bringing you into a natural space and transforming you into something that maybe will endure or hopefully will endure and grow and change in a way that is positive because if you become part of the forest you understand the forest and you contribute to a greening of this landscape 
That's so interesting. So it's really um, kind of the greening of voice and the greening of sound that's coming through and all of this use of sound mm-hmm. imagery and and the poetic voice and the italicized voice. And <laughs> <laughs> I love those layers. Um, and I was curious about the title of the poem, too. Uh, what's the role of the equinox in the poem? I was thinking about fall and sort of this transitional period where the light and the dark are equal and what it's kind of, it's sort of a liminal space where shadow and light are now weighed equal but which is which is growing which is faltering and so we're on this pinnacle of now the shadow is going to become longer and we're entering a darker a colder time and so that sort of decisive moment of maybe these are coming up against one another and one is growing in strength, one is shrinking, but for this one night, they are on a par with each other and maybe in some kind of dialogue. That's awesome. So that links back to that <laughs> that voicing and that mm-hmm. in, that uh, that element of the poem. That's awesome. Um, did you want to move on to the next poem? Sure. Will that one be Victor too? Yeah. Did I get the order right? Okay. <laughs> uh, this one is another uh, reprint. It appeared in, um, I have to double check here to make sure I have the snow-capped press um, was the press and it was in an anthology called Blackberry Blood. Victor too. I made you. I made you and I'm sorry. Without that first tie, the whole scaffold of flesh and sail comes tumbling away. There's nothing but a mass of crumpled skin, sopping wet. It moves away, searching for some sort of delivery, some stitch to make it whole. Or maybe what it wants is undoing, an agent to come unbind it from you, from itself. There is one out there who can peel apart crescendos like layers on an onion, sift through the melting mass and drag organ after organ away, dropping them together in a jar to knock about, hollow in isolation. Maybe this is what it wants after how you failed. Maybe this is how you should repay it. You step forward, waiting for it to ooze away, out of sight and out of mind. You have all the power to run, but instead you stand and watch that thing you tried and failed to create sag and die. I made you of myself. I should have recognized my mistake. Your toes edging to the place where the porch dips away, sloping down to the mud and the thing. Tendrils of its half-formed body spread, reaching. The trees tremble, yet their branches hold on to the stars. They remain. I wanted you gone as much as I wanted you. You step off the porch. Mud seizes you, whispering all the words of all the languages you refused to learn. Reclaiming flesh and sailcloth from which you began, skin mixes with clay. Too late for either now. Birth is another type of murder, never clean, never quick. 
What made you think you could leave? Thank you so much. Oh, that's such a strong ending. <laughs> um, so I'm guessing that given the theme of this poem, I just want to ask, like, is this a reference to Victor Frankenstein? It is. Okay, good. <laughs> I was like, I could be way off, but, you know. <laughs> Um, it's, it's one of those things where I title it and I hope that my title isn't too vague, but is like just close <laughs> enough to hopefully suggest it. <laughs> right. Um, I thought that was interesting. I was like, uh, hopefully I'm right because this question hinges on that. Um, it, it's intriguing that in some ways it's kind of an inversion of what we think of when we think of um, the whole situation with Frankenstein and his monster, that horror of making. And in this poem, there's a lot of horror of unmaking. Um, and there's a lot of attention at play in that. Um, could you speak to that theme a little? Yeah, I, with this poem, I was sort of imagining, like, noticing the mistake of the making and choosing to, like, how Victor Frankenstein, he's essentially destroyed by his creation, but it takes a long time to get there, and there's a lot of denial and a lot of running away and other people get hurt whereas in this poem it's more like you tried to make this thing and failed and instead of turning away and ignoring the failure facing it and sort of that ultimate mixing together and becoming one with the creation and maybe sinking away into nothing or maybe becoming something new and that kind of merging of birth and death again, sort of this <laughs> parallel kind of opposites meeting and mixing and merging and maybe making something new or maybe destroying each other in that collision. Yeah, that's such an interesting idea because I think that it's like, it's kind of literalized, but it works metaphorically too, especially in lines like, birth is another type of murder, never clean, never quick. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's the case for Victor Frankenstein and these kind of experiments with life. But like certainly an antinatalist viewpoint might agree with that, too. Right. Like, <laughs> by giving birth, we're dooming another creature to death eventually, you know, hopefully after a long time. But <laughs> yeah. And sort of the act of giving birth as like ending that first stage of life where two beings are contained in one. Now there's a there's a ripping apart of now you're two separate beings those I sort of conceptualize as like mitosis <laughs> um, <Right. laughs> that like what was one is now two and so there's there's a loss there even in a natural process mm -hmm. yeah and the just like general transformation I guess of life after <laughs> yeah I, I don't have children myself but you know it seems like it's a very dramatic shift in people's lives <laughs> yes <laughs> Uh, that's so interesting. I really, I like, I found it especially resonant, like this, this, these masses and just like the mess of what, what has happened in this mm -hmm. process of unmaking and how they merge in unmaking. Yeah. And yeah, having the consequences, but not necessarily, like a sort of interrogate consequences inherently being something bad. It's just what comes after the choice, what comes after the action. And so investigating kind of all the sides of that and who's pulled in, who's affected. Mm -hmm. And that kind of irreversibility of it, like, 
mm-hmm. the fact of creation, it has been created. So even if it is destroyed, the fact of its creation is still there. Yeah. I love that that's really reinforced, reinforced rather with the last line. What made you think you could leave? Because it's like, mm-hmm. you know, this this exists now <laughs> and you are tied to it forever. And I mean, I guess that is ultimately the fate of uh, Victor Frankenstein, too. Mm hmm. Yeah, the the imprint that something makes. Mm-hmm. There's an enduring of it, which is actually a really great segue to the next poem, I think. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. So, yeah, the next one is Death Shadow, which is an original to the collection. I think the next three are all originals. Yes. Ooh, nice. So we'll have some some never before seen poems. <laughs> Death shadow. My breath surrendered. My heart relinquished. My pulse laid down to blet. It is a glorious thing, losing everything. In stopping, I feel less and more, and outside skin that never fit. First too tight, then loose and loose and lost. I let go of it all, and it wasn't my choice. This is the best, I think. Lying blameless, lying bare. I watch myself bloat, purge fluids and solids and spirits borrowed from my mother, grandmothers stacked through millennia of dying. This is my favorite bed. When at last they find me, peel me up and fold me through a door I never locked, a shadow remains. Mille fleur darkened by my gravity, a pattern I hope they never wash away. I am sleeping here still, sinking deeper, wrapping my ending in flannel sheets sorted by my mother, pressed by my grandmother, wrought by wrinkled fingers over ages and ages, to hold me last and no one else. Thank you. That's so chilling. There's such an interesting tension in this poem between surrender and desire. And like at the beginning of the poem, the voice is surrendering, there's relinquishing and mm-hmm. laying down. And but like then there's like this immediate firm sense of glory in it. And so there's like this kind of like tension and irony going on uh, throughout the rest of the poem. Uh, what would you say is going on with those two forces? I think it's uh, the tension between the prevailing desire that has been kind of put upon throughout your life to to leave something behind to have an imprint and the also the realization that death itself can be an imprint and the what you leave behind that sort of desire that my work my life's work that I'm leaving behind is the imprint of my body on the world and this long history of uh, a family tree and of heritage, it's not just a line of lives lived, it's a line of deaths died, (laughs) 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 of deaths enacted, I guess, that that there's two sides to a life. And we often talk about just the first part, which is all the years that you're inhabiting the world and being active, when ultimately you're always going to come to that point where you are no longer active, where you are 
dead and you're dead for much longer than you're alive. <laughs> and that kind of enacting of sort of the good death of making this a glorious ending and part of your legacy is the fact that you have died and that you have died in your own way. Um, whether I wouldn't say that this is a euthanasia poem or a suicide poem, but it's just that the recognition that this is on my terms, how I'm going out, because it's the last thing that maybe you can control in something inevitable. Mm -hmm. There's a really interesting ambiguity there, because when I was reading it, I was like, is it euthanasia? Is it suicide? But I think that that speaks to what you're talking about, about like a good death and the fact that our culture on a mass scale doesn't really like thinking about it in those terms. Like you said, we like to really focus on the alive part of it and like the anthropocentric, how does this affect other humans like mm -hmm. while we're alive and even into the future? So it's like to take that away and to just think of it in terms of the body and the imprint left by the body is really interesting to me. Yeah, the sort of the it's also a moment of breaking where the spirit has left the body and is kind of observing this process. And it's a it's a messy process. It's a natural process. And sort of the poem indicates that it takes a while for the body to be found. And so maybe there's some loneliness there. But the conviction of the spirit self that this is part of my impact on the world. I'm continuing to have an impact even after this, the living stage has ended. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my next question actually had to do with that, like, that sense of time that's in the poem and like, how it's laid out, you know, in terms of that storying and that generational thing so there's like mm -hmm. the spirits borrowed from my mother and grandmother stacked through millennia of dying I love that way of thinking about time and the body um is that something that you write about frequently or is something that I guess specifically this poem you wanted to explore I yeah I think I write about it fairly often like again, sort of coming back to sort of a legacy of fairy tales, there's a lot of death in fairy tales. Mm -hmm. And like the mother dies or many, many people die depending <laughs> on the fairy tale. And um, like this poem was partly, it kind of the idea came from it. I went to um, a presentation by from a deaf investigator who was talking about all of the bodies she gets called in to f determine cause of death. And Often these are cases where there's advanced stages of decomposition and it's not necessarily crime related. It could be someone just died alone in their home and eventually there's a smell and things like that. All that messiness that comes with death and just kind of conceptualizing that as something that is has a long history and how we deal with death has changed over time and based society to society, small communities versus large communities, and how those are may deal with death differently. And when you're in a small community, it will be very personal because everyone will know the deceased in some way, maybe be related to them. And that relation making it, again, yeah, accessing that personal 
side of death and that blood relation, social relation. And yeah, it essentially becomes a matter of heritage that maybe these deaths haven't happened in violent ways or been orchestrated in some way, but it still affects you because one person living and dying and what they leave behind, children, family members, will remember that and will remember them and think about their life, but also think about their death and maybe want to die in a similar way if it's peaceful, if it's significant in some way. That's really interesting to think about. It had never occurred to me that um, often when people kind of die alone like that, we assume a sense of like almost depersonalization from it, like it anonymizes them somehow as if they don't actually have a story other than that last kind of moment of isolation mm-hmm. and loneliness. And we assume that that's just kind of like, oh, they died alone. They must have been estranged from people or just otherwise alienated and deeply lonely people. But like they had a whole life that was previously lived. And I think this poem does a lot of really interesting work. And with this additional context, especially thinking about like, no, there's entire histories and legacies of <laughs> existence in one body, you know? <laughs> yeah. And your your flesh is always kind of bound to that legacy because what happens to it, your whole kind of arc of being from a clump of cells to back down to dis- decomposing and being becoming nutrients for something else and then all the fauna and flora that you support in within and on top of your body as you're living I I'm just so fascinated by all these connections and how something that may appear on the surface or at a distance as destructive is bringing life to something else and will grow again in another form and that sort of interconnectivity of life and death yeah that's so interesting to me like I think that that's kind of a and I, I think there's kind of a turn toward this in the death industry. I'm not super acquainted with death studies, but it's my understanding, like with green burials increasing in popularity mm-hmm. and stuff, like we're kind of moving away from earlier 20th century mortuary practices and stuff first became available of embalming and stuff like this idea of the eternal body. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that we're thinking about things more greenly, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. And rather than trying to preserve something that no longer supports a spirit or trying to purely work with aesthetics, then kind of recognizing that no matter what you do in preservation, eventually that will break down. And Mm -hmm. rather than poison the soil or um, pump all these different kind of preservatives into what is essentially a corpse, maybe just go right into the natural process and embrace it as what comes next and how other life can continue to be supported through taking part in the breaking down and the recycling of the materials that your body is made from. So interesting. Um, thank you. <laughs> it's given me a lot to think about. <laughs> um, maybe we should move on to the next poem, uh, Take Me As Prescribed. 
Sure. Take me as prescribed. I folded myself into a pill, contorted my shoulders and hunched my knees, flattened my face to match the shell I urge you to swallow. Inside, it is milky blue, whirls of morphine fireworking like blackness under my dreaming lids. My feet lose feeling waiting to be consumed. My hair senesces and I am bald as your teeth. Please choose quickly. Drink water or absinthe, orange juice or Kool-Aid laced with past mistakes. I am the one lying at the bottle's bottom, colored orange by the kitchen light. You can't miss me. I'm last. Drink. Swallow. Press your tongue to the roof of your mouth, and soon I'll be with you. Always. Thank you. Uh, the persona of this poem is so striking. Um, who is the I in the poem? What What is the motivation between this behind this pill form? I sort of envisioned it as a love poem, I guess, <laughs> um, of a type <laughs> that the the sort of again kind of coming back to that desire to be one with another person and how to access that. And so in this case, it's becoming a pill and maybe enacting the other person's suicide so that you're together in death, but in that moment before you're together bodily by being the act of consumption as a sort of becoming one with another person. Yeah, that was really interesting to me as I read, because it's like, there's a real sense of menace in this, <laughs> in addition to a kind of like romanticism. So yeah, there's that kind of like through line of obsession and just like mm -hmm. possession. Yeah, I love that obsession and possession. <laughs> um, it was so interesting to me as well, like the physical layers that exist in the poem, like that idea of containment and like the different ways containment exists in the poem with lids and bottles. And mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting to me now, especially based on this conversation, like because you deal so beautifully with the natural environment and then it's just like bringing some artificial physical environmental layers into it. Uh, what What is that process like for you to in writing this poem or in general? Um, I guess I, yeah, I often, yeah, I often stay within the natural world, but when I am sort of inhabiting an indoor space um, in work, it it's usually a lot of looking around <laughs> in, <laughs> in my head and thinking about sort of the corners and colors that make up sort of really the spaces that we spend most of our time and write about, but I guess, depending on who you are, maybe not write about them very much or because it's familiar, we don't often take time to describe it deeply in a real uh, clinical detail of how, what is the impact of artificial light? What does it feel like? Um, and what kind of mood does it access? Because like the natural world, I think we very much have kind of a recognition of like what rain means for a mood, what sun means for a mood. Whereas what does what does a light bulb mean? Like besides <laughs> it means you have an idea. <laughs> like 
but this is the kind of light that it is static. It really only has one setting, but so much can happen within that setting because so much of your life is being carried out in an indoor constructed space. And so for me, there's often a, a bit of a grittiness in something that is manufactured. Um, and there it's it's not necessarily devoid of life because there is always going to be life in some form, no matter where you are, whether you're on the ISS or on <laughs> Earth, there is life in microscopic forms. And that life is always going to be tied to the larger life forms that are coexisting with it. So to humans. And yeah, and there's some there's obviously a, a twisting of kind of physics in this poem that you could actually fit yourself into a pill. And maybe the question of how did you get so small that you can do that? And <laughs> what are we bending here to make this kind of possible? And I think that kind of uh, accessing that is also tied to the details and trying to glimpse, all right, what does it feel like? What does it look like? And that will help you inhabit this impossible space. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting metaphor that you use to kind of like reinforce that element, um, like milky blue, like blue is not mm -hmm. typically milky. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> And then like the orange juice contrasted with the orange bottle, you know, mm -hmm. under the kitchen light and just um, the idea of teeth as bald <laughs> <laughs> and fireworking like blackness. Like this really there's a really uh, striking through line of just like the unnatural that's built into mm. what is a fairly short poem. But I think it really reinforces that kind of like built environment versus natural environment yeah definitely paradoxical <laughs> in yeah. several ways <laughs> that's great um okay so i guess we have one more poem left uh and that is such a great final choice too because i think it'll really like put a nice bow on everything we've been talking about already <laughs> thematically um yeah did you want to read mothers become stepmothers in fairy tales Sure, yes. Okay. Um, this is another original to the collection. Mothers become stepmothers in fairy tales. In daguerreotypes, they conceal us, under quilts, screened and scratched out ink, hiding on the left, on the right side of our children. We are born in birthing our new ghost lives. Mothers cannot be bad mothers. Mothers cannot be good mothers. Women cannot unmother, demother, never mother, self save through emptying, being empty, facing empty, dying empty. We are born to mother, 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 smother our lives in the dreams of others whose being unmade ours. In fairy tales, there are no mothers anymore. We fall back into the past, off screen, under screens, hidden in the artificial shadows of our children. Stay still so the camera can cut you out. This stepping of us, titles bestepped, ties unmothered, severed, deleted, detached, despised in adding just one word. Step. Step. 
step on her and see her melt away, leaving her children alone again, alone, standing, staring into the lens she cannot see. Thank you. The case is one of the most striking things about this poem to me. I mean, there's so much that's striking in it, but I was just like, what is going on with this uh, daguerreotype? And then like the camula, uh, sorry, the camera articulating like almost a kind of violence and mm. on the speaker. Um, could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, um, this poem was directly influenced by two things, um, which is uh, one was a panel, I believe, Boscone that. I know Dora Goss was talking. I don't remember if it was <laughs> Boscone or where it was, um, but she was talking about how mothers in fairy tales over time were changed into stepmothers because it was sort of felt that no mother could be that cruel to her own children, so she has to be a stepmother. And so I was fascinated with this sort of erasing of the actual maternal ties and making it into a stranger for the villain character. And then the other influence in this poem with the daguerreotypes is ghost mother photographs, which are a very fascinating uh, Victorian or piece of Victorian visual culture, which was that um, the mother, which is often like actually a caretaker, like a governess, um, but the sort of maternal figure who the child would respond to was included in the photograph, but had to be covered up. So you have these very creepy photographs of this human figure under some kind of wrap with the child in their lap or next to them. And they're present in the photo to keep the child still, to keep the child calm for the long duration of exposure to get the photograph. But they're cut out of the actual photo. And there are some more, some creepier versions where they're, they take the photo and then they black out the face. And it's just such a really interesting kind of violent erasure of the caretaker figure who will who is a feminine figure whether she's the mother or the governess and that erasing of her because the child is what matters and so I kind of merged these two ideas into this poem to really think about like how this erasure is an act of violence against this the the female figure and the maternal figure and not being allowed to be there, whether it's being there as a caretaker or being there as a violent figure in a fairy tale. Oh, that's that's too bloody for a mother to do. Let's make it the stepmother who does it. And that it's just so weird and creepy. <laughs> so I just had to like kind of harness it and like investigate it. And yeah, and then sort of it became a very kind of rhythmic poem as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love um, all the play with the word mother and like, that really makes sense. Like mothers cannot be bad mothers, mothers cannot be good mothers. Like it's just mm -hmm. like, these opportunities have been torn away. <laughs> yeah. Like there's just written out of the narrative altogether. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you haven't seen ghost mother photographs, absolutely look them up. They're so creepy. I And you can find them. Like I if you go to shops that sell old photographs, just like go through and look at photographs of Victorian children. And you can see that what at first seems to be a chair isn't a chair. There's like someone there and it's really creepy. And I have, I went to a shop and I collected like four photos just from going through the photos. You can find them. And they're just like very, very surreal to look at. 
That's amazing. And that was probably like fairly normal for the audience mm-hmm. at the time, right? They're just like, oh, yeah, yeah. there's a ghost mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the same way that it's kind of normal to think about mothers just not being present in fairy tales. Like I that had mm-hmm. never occurred to me. Um, just well, like it's interesting, right? Because like when you're a kid, especially if you're a little girl, like I feel like I was really encouraged to identify with mothers and like Mm-hmm. pretend to be a mom and play with dolls and things like that and like in fairy tales that impulse doesn't exist like the children are usually the protagonists and it's interesting mm-hmm. that that role just kind of gets written out altogether <laughs> yeah and forcing the child to make the decisions on their own and if the mother is there it's she's a very minor character or she dies pretty quickly <laughs> and for and I mean we see it it's gradually fading a little bit but in like middle grade and YA like for a long time it was like all right you have to make your main character an orphan so that they can go off and do stuff without having parental um ties or needing to like ask their parents for permission like how do you get them (laughs) alone to enact the adventure will kill off the parents right all right presto solved now they're on their own (laughs) I guess that happens too in some Disney movies, right? It's just like, oh God, which parent mm-hmm. is gonna pass? And like, I guess yeah. that that's helpful for maybe like in some level showing children that they can navigate an uncertain world with an absence of a parent and be okay ultimately. But it's interesting how often it is the mother and mm-hmm. how often I guess like that aspect of the narrative is viewed as expendable. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a role that often comes with too many trappings to make it feasible that oh there you can't have a mother here because then how do you explain away this thing or how do you make it an unhappy home we don't want to make it look like the mother is being bad we'll just make it a stepmother because then she can be cold and heartless and childless <laughs> and then we can villainize the childless woman <laughs> and now we can like do some other things there <laughs> Okay, I just want to say, no, never mind. <laughs> I'm like, it's a spoiler for a movie that came out recently, but I don't want to, I don't want to bring it up in case it spoils it for you too. So never mind. <laughs> um, yeah, and I find it interesting too that like this imagery is coming up again in another poem with the mothering thing. What what would you say is your relationship to writing mothers into your poems? Is that part of your fairy tale influence, writing them back in, or it's I guess it's sort of it's partly fairy tale influence. It's partly kind of a, a feminist lens and like what is the the requirement to be maternal to kind of enact that role and pushing back against that. And also I'm very interested, I guess it comes up probably more in my fiction than in my poetry, but in the image of the crone and the the woman who is old and has no children and is therefore worthless or has failed in some way. And so kind of interrogating that image. And there's a, there's a piece of art and I don't remember the artist, (laughs) but there's many examples of it, but um, again, sort of a Victorian era of the stages of life for a woman that she's a child and then a young woman who's being married off and then a mother and then a crone. And so these stages of life that are the blueprint of what 
role you have to enact. And obviously today that's less prevalent, but there's still there's still vestiges of it. And depending on where you are and kind of your situation growing up, that could be more or less of a have more or less of an impact in how you view yourself as you're growing up and the path you're taking and making that interrogating it and pushing back on a set role for anyone (laughs) that you have to enact like why should any aspect of your identity determine the path you must take in life Mm -hmm. it's interesting because yeah like there's kind of an inherently patriarchal tie to that construct but also like it's reclaimed a lot especially in like pagan circles it's like mm-hmm. in your maiden mother crone era you know <laughs> um, and like when I reached the at first uneasy decision not to have children I was like what does it mean then for me to be in this kind of like mother stage of my life mm-hmm. it's like well psh, I'm mothering myself and I'm <laughs> creating all these other things and like you know there's a lot of ways to have that archetypally creative and nurturing expression throughout life in many Mm -hmm. different forms and feeling that your worth is not tied to anything outside of yourself which is big just in any kind of (laughs) self-care yeah and any gender role really like just Mm -hmm. getting to the core of that self that just exists regardless of (laughs) what labor you perform for others or what role you have (laughs) That's interesting. And I think that really ties back to some of the themes we've talked about today and just like that storying of the self, but also just being part of this natural landscape and this natural cycle of life. Yeah. I guess that might be a good note to end on. (laughs) Was there anything you wanted to talk about or to mention to the listeners? Well, uh, thank you, Tiffany, for having me on. And I'll just, I guess, reiterate that my collection, Rivers in Your Skin, Sirens in Your Hair, is officially out on April 4th. Um, But you can order it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, Android Press, um, if you're interested in speculative poetry. That's awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, Mariska. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time.